Hi, listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. In this week's episode, I'm going to tell you about a little girl who disappeared from her bed. This is the story of the abduction and murder of Danielle Van Dam. In the evening of February 1st, 2002, Brenda Van Dam went out with two friends, Denise Kimmel and Barbara Easton, to a local bar in Poway named Dad's. Brenda's husband, Damon Van Dam, stayed home that night to take care of their three children, 10-year-old Derek, 7-year-old Danielle, and five-year-old Dylan. Denise and Barbara arrive at Damon and Brenda's home at around 8 p.m. on that night of February 1st. Brenda and her two friends go into the garage to smoke marijuana. While they're in the garage smoking marijuana, they open the garage side door to let the smoke out. And I read somewhere that no one really remembers if that door was locked after they had finished smoking marijuana. And I'm telling you this because this is going to play an important part in Danielle's disappearance, okay? Hmm, interesting, okay. So, okay. So after Brenda and her two friends finish smoking marijuana, the three of them leave to go to that local bar I mentioned earlier in Poway named Dad's. While at the bar, it's said that Brenda sees that her neighbor from two doors down, David Westerfield, is also at the bar with two of his friends. So Brenda goes over to David Westerfield to introduce him to her friend. And it was one in particular that caught his eye, Barbara Easton. Wait, what's up with Barbara? Okay, so let me back up a little bit. So allegedly a week before Danielle went missing on January 25th, 2002, Brenda had gone out to dad's with Denise and Barbara. And while they were there, they had seen David and David had ended up buying the three of them drinks. And Brenda and David talked for a little, but was otherwise with her two friends. So the following Tuesday after the encounter at Dan's, Brenda, Danielle and Brenda's youngest son, Dylan, had walked around the neighborhood selling Girl Scout cookies. And when they knocked on David's house to see if he wanted to buy cookies from them, David invited them into their house so that he could fill out the, you know, the order form. So while they were in the house, Daniel and Dylan go into David's backyard to look at his pool. And while the kids are outside, David starts to talk to Brenda about that Friday night at dad's and he let Brenda know that he was interested in her friend, Barbara. So Brenda told David that they might be going back to dad's that upcoming Friday, depending if Barbara was able to get a babysitter for her kids, since Barbara's husband was going to be away for the weekend. So when the three women arrive at the bar, Brenda introduced Barbara to David, and that's when David got Barbara a drink. Okay, so I read that even though David went over to the three girls and he had bought them a drink, that he wasn't really part of their conversation. Wait, wasn't that the reason he was there? Yeah, but I don't know. You know how some people could be awkward. Like, 
he was just there, you know, hmm. but he wasn't really engaging. Okay. And that around 9 p.m., Richard Brady and Keith Stone showed up to the bar to meet up with the three women. And I read that even though David wasn't really part of their group or the conversation, that it was reported that he did watch them play pool for a little while. So what, he just lingered around? Yeah, so he just kind of like stuck around and, you know, kind of like hovered, but wasn't really part of their group, but he was, what was it? You know what I mean? So who exactly is Richard Brady and Keith Stone? Are Those are just friends? two friends. Yeah, two two other friends that joined them at the bar. Okay. So then at around 10.30 p.m. or around 11, allegedly Brenda and her friends had all gone outside to her car to smoke more marijuana. And after they finished smoking marijuana, they went back into the bar and it said that they all danced for a little bit. And this is where I read different things one like i read that some people said that brenda had been seen like dirty dancing with david and then i also read that brenda declined ever dancing with david huh yeah so i think that part of the story like that part of the story we might never know because some witnesses say that brenda was very flirtatious that night with david and others say that she wasn't. It was just like casual conversation, you know? So even with the witnesses that were there, it was kind of... Yeah, like it, it was different stories. Huh. So we might Weird. never really know that for sure. Mm -hmm. So the group left the bar at 2 a.m. to head back to Brenda's house. And it said that David allegedly left the bar at 1230. Oh, so he left before. Mm-hmm. But again... I also read different things during my research. It seemed like no one could really say for sure at what time David did leave the bar. I mean, I get that. I mean, you you go out and you're drinking and they're getting Yeah, like you're stuff. not really like paying attention to the time, you right. know? Either left together at the same time or who knows what time. Mm-hmm. So when Brenda arrives home, she notices a red blinking light on the alarm monitor indicating that there was a window or door open. Brenda and Denise start looking for the open window or door, and they found that the garage side door was open. Wait, was that the one that so they were... So they closed it. Wait, was that the one that they were smoking yeah. earlier? Mm -hmm. Okay. So Brenda goes upstairs to tell Damon that Brady and Stone were, were visiting. So Brenda doesn't check on the children, but she does go over to their rooms and she closes the doors due to the potential noise that, you know, might be going on downstairs. So Brenda walked back downstairs and everyone ate leftover pizza. And about 20 minutes later, everyone left. Damon and Brenda lock up the house and went to bed. But then at around 2.30 a.m., so 30 minutes later, Damon woke up again, and he sees a red light flashing in the alarm monitor that was in the room. So he goes downstairs, and he notices a cold draft of air in the hallway. He found the sliding glass door to the backyard open. Oh, so, no. yeah, so he closes the door, made sure that all the other doors were closed, including the side garage door. And he checked the alarm monitor to make sure that it wasn't still flashing. And once he confirmed that it was no longer flashing, Damon goes back to bed. 
Just like that? I mean, I know I wouldn't have. There's a door open downstairs <laughs> that was not left open. There's no way. But, I mean, do you know that? Yes. After a night of, like, smoking marijuana and drinking and eating pizza. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't... I you, you might not. Point. And then you're, you're, like, still half asleep. I mean, it's only 30 minutes later. I know. It, it's, I know. It's very interesting, but... So the next morning, Brenda wakes up and goes downstairs to make breakfast. And then at around 9.30 a.m., Brenda goes upstairs to wake up her daughter, Danielle, because by now all the other kids and everybody had to come downstairs and she was the only one that hadn't gone downstairs. But when she goes into Danielle's room, Danielle is not in her room. Brenda calls 911 and reports her seven-year-old daughter, Danielle, missing. That's horrible. I mean, again, you go downstairs, the door is wide open, mm-hmm. and you don't go check on the kids? Mm-mm. Like, that'd be my first reaction. Just just a double check to make sure nothing's going on. Even if I think, yeah, I probably did it. I'm still checking. Yeah, but, I mean, again, like, he was probably half asleep. Well, they still high. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just saying that must have played, you know, a part in the role. Yeah. But I mean, I know what you mean. I think that, you know, obviously in your right state of mind, sober, yeah, like true. you probably would think like, mm, let me just go make sure that, you know, they're not awake or they didn't wake up. And, yeah. you know, this coming from the man does not carry his license. All of a sudden you're paranoid. Yeah, huh? but I do look. There's a door that's <laughs> open. I check to make sure everything's locked mm. every day. And if something's open, that's weird. I'm not just going to go back to bed. Okay, so by Sunday, February 3rd, police have now set up a command post on the Van Dam Street and have gone knocking door to door to about 200 houses to get any information on Daniel. But even though they were able to knock like door to door to 200 houses, and they ended up talking to residents as well, they weren't able to talk to someone that was only two houses down from Brenda and David. Police had not been able to get in contact with David Westerfield. When police are finally able to talk to David Westerfield, David tells them that he had gone on a two-day trip around the county. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) A two-day trip around the county is like a really long drive in circles? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, pretty much, actually. So David said that he had woken up around 6.30 a.m. on Saturday morning and that he wanted to go to the desert. So he drove to High Valley to get his motor home where he kept it. Then he stated that he drove the motor home back to his house to fill it up with groceries. And then he left his house and his motor home at around 9.50 a.m. He tells police that somewhere along the way, he realized that he didn't have his wallet on him. See, and, it happens. Hmm? It happens. Mm, okay. <laughs> and so instead, he made the decision to drive to the state park in Silver Strand near the city of Coronado. And when he arrived at the state park, he filled out a registration form. 
and placed the money in an envelope for a three-night stay. But then he decided it was too cold. And he decided to leave, to drive back home, get his wallet, and go to the desert. So David said that upon arriving back home, he noticed all the news vans and all the police activity in his neighborhood. And he stated that a neighbor told him about the missing girl. So he immediately went inside to look in his backyard and around his pool. When he didn't see anything strange, he grabbed his wallet and, you know, headed back to the desert. None of this makes sense. So Mm -hmm. he went to the beach to stay there. He said, oh, it's too cold. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what? I'm going to go the complete opposite extreme and go to the desert now. Mm -hmm. That's the story. Mm -hmm. Well, he has to stay warm. (laughs) So, okay. No, I totally agree with you. But this is why police are to suspect David right away. Because his story was just not adding up. Just how it didn't add up with you. It didn't add up with me. It didn't add up to them We'll have another one here. How did he pay for the parking if he didn't have his wallet? Exactly. Okay. So when they check his alibi with the park ranger at the state park, the park ranger told police officers that he had noticed that David had overpaid by $30, that he had placed a $50 bill in the envelope. So the park ranger knocked on David's motorhome, and he said that David was acting very strange. He stated that David barely opened the door when he knocked, and that when David opened opened the door that he stepped out of the motorhome closing the door behind him right away and i guess the park ranger also told police that he had noticed that when he gave him the money that he had overpaid he said that david pulled out his wallet no (laughs) yeah wow so he actually saw that too yeah so Like, obviously, the park ranger made a note of it because he remembers, like, hey, here you overpaid, here you go. And he remembers the guy pulling out his wallet. So the park ranger also made a comment about how the motorhome had all the blinds closed and, like, nobody can see inside. So when police officers follow up on David's story about going to the desert, they came across other similar statements by witnesses that say that David at the desert, that he was acting strange too. So police officers asked David if they could search his home and his motor home. And David agrees. And upon doing so, police officers noticed how clean his house was. But when they go into his room, they noticed that all the sheets to his bed were gone. And when they searched the motor home, they also made the same discovery. All of the sheets in the bed of the motor home were gone too. Police also noticed a strong smell of bleach inside of his car, which we all all know what that means. Police officers start to interview Julie Mills. She worked at Twin Peaks Cleaners in Poway, and she was very familiar with David as he was a usual customer of hers. And she told police that on Monday, February 4th, 2002, between 7 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., 
David has shown up to drop off a sports jacket, a couple of comforters, and some other bedding. Hmm. So Julie noticed some other odd things about David. She noticed that even though it was cold that morning, David was wearing thin shorts, a very thin t-shirt, with no shoes and no socks. No wonder he left the beach. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) So Julie thought this was odd because she had never seen David dressed in that manner before. Which, I don't know about you, I don't know exactly what he was wearing, but I'm picturing, like, just a white undershirt, like a white, you know, Mm t-shirt. Some, I don't know why, cargo khaki shorts, and I'm picturing, like, he's barefoot. Not not even flip-flops. I don't know, that's what I picture, but... (laughs) (laughs) So now every time I see that, I think, like, right, that's, you know, they did something shady. Rather than, oh, no, they just spend the day at PB. But she also noticed how David was not his usual talkative self. And he wouldn't look her in the eye. Julie also remembers seeing David arriving in a mortar home, which she had never seen him do before. So police found this very off since David had not mentioned a trip to the dry cleaners. In his recounting of his weekend. So David also made a second trip to the dry cleaners that same day at around 1.40 p.m. And this time he had arrived in his car. He dropped off a sweater, pants, and a t-shirt. And he requested same day service. During this search of David's home, police also found child pornography and his computer which later he would say in court that it must have been his son's, which is like... Really wow, he's going to throw his son in the Right, basket? like how did... Like, oh my God, this guy, I swear. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. So police end up arresting David Westerfield on February 22nd, 2002. After police are able to make the determination that the blood stain that was found in his jacket that he had dropped off at the dry cleaners had matched the blood of Daniel Van Dam. Then, on February 27, 2002, volunteers looking for Daniel's body make a horrific discovery of a small, badly decomposed body near a trail in Dehisa, California. Daniel's body was in such poor condition that the coroner wasn't able to determine the cause of death or whether she had even been sexually assaulted, and had to use dental records to confirm her identity. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's horrible. So the trial lasted two months, and during the trial, the parenting skills of Brenda and Damon were questioned. During the trial, it came out how allegedly Brenda and Damon were swingers, and that Maybe because of this lifestyle, it opened the door to something like this awful to happen. Which I mean, yeah, come on. Yeah, like, again, in my opinion, it's just ridiculous and disgusting that they would even bring that in court as an excuse as to why this would happen to an innocent child. You know, I don't understand why it makes it okay for something awful to happen to an innocent child if the parents are swingers, sex workers, or if they're, or if they do drugs, you know, which in my opinion, like 
None of that should matter. It shouldn't be brought into a courtroom because at the end of the day, an innocent life was taken. And it doesn't matter if the parents had a different lifestyle or even if the victim had a, a different lifestyle. Like, it's all the same, you know? And I'm not saying that the Van Dams were sex workers or drug addicts, but for them to bring it out in court as a, you know, defense is just... It's in poor taste. I mean, it really doesn't bring anything, yeah. any of value to mm -mm. whether this other guy did it or not. Because mm -hmm. what is it? Is it negligence? Oh, yeah. Because I was not focused on my children at that point in time, this happened. Yeah, so because, what? okay, so they during my research, and I can't, I couldn't confirm if it was true or not. I want to say it was, but I didn't include it in the story because I couldn't confirm it. But I did read that supposedly that night after all the friends came back with Brenda when they came back home. Remember yeah. how I said that Brenda and that other friend um, were looking to see if there was a window or door that was open and Damon was upstairs sleeping, right? right. So I read in my research that I don't know how, but somehow allegedly one of the friends had snuck upstairs and when... Brenda went upstairs to check, to let Damon know, hey, our friends are here, come downstairs. She had found those two friends snuggling, quote unquote, which means they weren't really snuggling. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, oh, hey, 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 you know, like, come downstairs, you guys. Hmm. So, you know, I think that's what the, the court was trying to say, like, because they were too busy, you know, canoodling. That. But again, what is that? Exactly. It, it to me is just disgusting. Like it, it has nothing that doesn't make it okay. That's still, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like at the end of the day, this purpose. guy clearly. Uh, I don't know. <sighs> I will step off my little soapbox. So David Westerfield was charged with kidnapping and first degree murder, and in January of two thousand three, a judge sentenced him to the death penalty. And he's currently awaiting his execution at the San Quentin State Prison. So was it a clear-cut case? I mean, it sounded like there was DNA evidence mm -hmm. from the jacket. Yeah, from the jacket. Yeah, like the stuff that he had dropped off at the cleaners. Along did with they, like... I was curious. Did they actually... Did they wash or did they clean it? or they... You know, it's funny because I actually tried to look that up and I couldn't find anything on that. But I'm assuming it... it is I'm assuming not, they right? didn't. They didn't clean it. Like, I'm assuming that raised a red flag, and then that's what oh, triggered true. it. Because, yeah, no, that's I true. couldn't find that. I was I was curious about that, too. And, no, I couldn't find anything about it. But I just think it's such a shame that the parents' reputation was tainted, you know, by everything that was dragged out in court that, to me, I just don't think it had anything to do with her disappearance. You know, but they also did try to point out, it's like, well, they were smoking marijuana in the garage and that left the door open. But again, it's like, I mean, okay, yeah, you can be forgetful. Are... You can be forgetful, forget to lock a door. But that doesn't mean that you have a big old sign in the front of it that says, hey, come here, come take my child. Like, you no, know, I mean, yeah, that's a mistake. They, mm -hmm. They're going to regret that for the rest of their lives. Oh, yeah. But that that doesn't mean it's okay for david to come in and and do that right and, take and it, somebody's life yeah and it's, it's just so sad like 
when I was reading um, on the story, like it was just so sad to read that the body was just so badly decomposed that I mean, for them to not even be able to identify because of you know the animals um, eating at the body and stuff that they couldn't identify if she had even been sexually assaulted. Yeah. Like that—that's just awful. Like it's really sad. Yeah, like they couldn't—they couldn't determine how she died. None of that, you know. That—that's just—that's—that's that's horrible. It's—it's it's awful. So, like I said, I just think it's also horrible that you know they would use that as a defense. Like, oh well, they were swingers. So, what did you expect to happen? That doesn't make it okay. Was he already arrested by the time they discovered the body? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read in my cool. research that it was like. I believe, like, within, like, a day or two where they had brought him in, that volunteers were the ones that found the body. So people that were, you know, volunteering with the family, trying to look for her and find her. That's how they ended up finding her. So, as promised, every week I like to bring you a unsolved murder case from the San Diego Crime Stoppers. San Diego County Crime Stoppers and investigators from the National City Police Department's Investigations Unit are asking for the public's help in identifying and locating the suspect or suspects responsible for the murder of 48-year-old Eric Denham. On February 17, 2020, at about 1.35 a.m., two males were exiting the crossing bridge from Las Palmas Park onto Grove Street when a unknown suspect fired several gunshots at them. The victims were both struck by a bullet. One victim was transported to the hospital for medical attention, and the other one was pronounced deceased at the scene. National City detectives were called to the scene and began investigating the incident. Detectives are trying to determine the circumstances which led to the victim's death. There are no witnesses, there are no suspects, or vehicle descriptions for this homicide. Anyone with information on the identity or location for the suspect or the suspect's vehicle is asked to call National City Police Department Investigations Unit. And like always, you can submit an anonymous tip to San Diego Crime Stoppers. Remember that any tip that's given through the San Diego Crime Stoppers website or their hotline, you will remain anonymous and you can help provide some closure to the victim's family. If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com and you can also follow us on Instagram at Podcast True Crime Weekly. And I truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review and subscribe onto Apple Podcasts. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening.